Hello and welcome to the Autocar Business Powerlist 100 podcast series sponsored by Keyloop. In this very special series, we'll be looking at the challenges and opportunities facing the individuals on our Powerlist 100, a collection of the 100 most influential people within the automotive industry. My name is Mark Tischel, editor of Autocar. Uh, with me today is editor-in-chief of Autocar, Steve Copley. Welcome, Steve. Hello, mate. And Tom Kilroy, CEO of Keyloop. Welcome, Tom. Thanks, Thank Mark. Thank you for joining us. Uh, and this week, um, we're going to be talking about the, the the biggest names of all in the industry, that those CEOs and, and OEM leaders running the companies on a day-to-day uh, basis. So we're going to kick off talking about our overall winner of the power list this year, uh, Renault boss Luca De Maio. He was chosen as our winner after dragging an ailing Renault group back to financial competitiveness. Uh, to paint the picture, when he joined the firm in 2020, it was in one of the deepest financial holes ever faced by a global automotive company, losing €8 billion uh, Euros the year before. Despite the pressures of the pandemic, DeMeo led Renault to scrape a profit in 2021 before doubling profits to 2.6 billion in 2022. And then already in this year, it has broken its all-time margin record. An incredible story. Steve, you've really uh, recently met DeMeo. How's he done it? Why is he our winner? Well, he did, nobody else deserves it as much, I think. He um, he has gone taken the company from losing 40 million euros a day to to um, making that kind of money now, I believe it, probably before tax, but it, but they're earning strongly. And he's, he has turned the company around faster than Carlos Ghosn turned Nissan Renault around and faster than Marchione or Tavares did their jobs as well. They're famous for recent uh, turnarounds, but, but uh, Demio has been the fastest of the lot. Uh, and what is the plan? This word revolution, you know, it's not a yeah, bit of it's jargon. A, it's uh, it's a it's a, a name that he claims he came up with in the shower one time, um, and it uh, it's a three phase thing, but the phases have all run together because he's achieved so much so quickly. That, I mean, in broadly speaking, he, the company he says was too fat. Um, it it uh, so what he's done is to reduce fixed costs by two and a half billion euros. Um, they were doing too much stuff on low margins. He talked very eloquently about how if you're in a business that's 120 years old and a lot of good people have been doing it, they refine it and refine it and refine it until there are no profit margins left and you've got to find new stuff to do. Um, he lowered production to 1.25 million cars. Sounds a lot, but it's but but they're profitable. Started to make bigger cars because small cars aren't don't carry profit margins. Uh, broke up into divisions, hived off the electric business, hived off the the uh, internal combustion business, um, built up this thing called Mobilize for these little sort of um, sub-car vehicles and uh, set up a circular economy business. So basically, six months, came up with the plan, put it into action. He's done a lot. And Tom, with, with your CEO eye on, it's, it's the strategy that impresses you, isn't it? Yes, I think it, I'm very impressed by the clarity of Demir's strategy. They laid it out in uh, 21, prosecuted it very quickly. But I think it's, it's really nice the way the three stages are get the foundations right, make a profit, run the company well, and then start the revolution towards value rather than a volume. And I mean, overall, I think the clarity of the strategy in a confusing environment around us is, is admirable. Mm. What does that take when you when you come into a company and have to 
set that strategy? How does it how does it work in practice? Do you just get some key people around you and, and, and go from there, or is it delivering it in big town halls? Well, I think part of it is deciding how to communicate it and what not to do. So he's been very focused on the key things that he wants to drive. So I think being clear and getting that clarity across the company is a big part of it. But I think what he's also done is removed a lot of the noise because we're in an environment where a lot of change is happening. And he's been very clear about how he wants the company to move. And I think that comes across very well. What's he like, Steve, in, in person then? A nice oh, he's a great leader. I, I've, I've known him at, let me see, he started at Renault as a, as a boy, but he's worked at Fiat, which is where I first met him. He's been at Abarth, he's been at Alfa Romeo, he's been at Audi, and he's been at Seat. And his, his own personal philosophy is to go somewhere where the problems are. He describes um, Audi as being just like, you know, getting on the train you know it, it it just reaches another stop predicted every everything's pretty much um set up as or everything's expected so he asked to go to say it which of course was a was a vw group uh, um outpost that was in trouble because it was in trouble and of course he turned it around as we know he did. You spent the day with him there. I remember a story you did, didn't you? Didn't you spend a, a day shadowing when he was at, uh, at Sayat? Yeah, it was pretty hard to shadow him, in all honesty, because he was he was, um, oh, he was a jack-in-the-box. But uh, the thing that was fabulous about him was that he was very careful to encourage people, encourage people the whole time. It was, you know, he, even now he goes on about a team effort. The thing I was going to say, he, I said to him, what are the two words that most that, that, that – um, that that stand for everything you do and he says two things be lean be innovative if you do that you're nine tenths of the way there mm, that's interesting that's not nine tenths <laughs> <laughs> how how do you get your point across tom then in, in someone like de Mayo's position coming into a company that 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 is struggling is in financial trouble you'd imagine that the staff pretty worn down you know in, in a leadership position yourself you know what what messages do you deliver? How how do you lead that turnaround yourself? Well, I think people want to be part of a winning team and they want to be optimistic about something. And I think it is in a situation where you've got difficulties, I think one of the most important things is painting clearly the possibility ahead and also starting to pour positivity in, you know, onto those that believe in that vision. So uh, there will always be arguments about what's the right thing to do in any company. But once clarity is established, if you can paint the picture of where you're going clearly for people, most people want to get behind it. And that's what drives, I think, the kind of culture change that you can see in Renault. Mm. They're looking for inspiration, aren't they? They're, and the, if Demio is one thing, he's inspirational. And by the way, so is Carlos Ghosn, so is, so is uh, uh, Tavares, and, and so is Elon Musk. Mm. The, the, it seems to me that these leaders, these people that people that, that uh, followers identify with are the ones that, that uh, have the success. You mentioned a couple of names there, Steve. We'll come back to Elon Musk later, but, but Carlos Tavares, the, the Stellantis CEO, he was our, our 2022 winner on the power list and, and joint second this year. Someone else you've, you've known well and interviewed. How, how, how does his approach differ um, for, from, from De Mayo's, but and how impressed are you every time you meet, meet Tavares? Oh, Tavares, is, I don't know how he's got enough space in his brain to do what he what he does, because he's in charge, as we know, of about eight different marks, doesn't he? Uh, isn't 14, he? isn't it, I think? Isn't is it? It's so 15 God. last week, they bought a oh, Chinese right. yeah, yeah, Because you chuck in all these, um, 
all these, uh, you know, trans HGV and God knows what, don't you? But yeah, he. Um, the thing about him that strikes you about him is that he loves cars. He's he uh, he loves the motor industry. I spent an entire weekend with him, a racing weekend. He used to be a, a he still is a pretty good racing driver. And when he was running Nissan in America, he used to show up, on, you know, in a cloud of dust from the airport to some uh, racing circuit in the middle of France. His family would have brought the racing car to the circuit. He would sweep in, practice the car, win a couple of races, get back to the airport. And and it, that's the guy he is. He's just dynamic is the word. But I was there for the entire weekend and we must have spent three hours talking about the motor industry. He loves it. Just loves it. Mm. He's got some. He's very quotable as well, isn't he? I think as well, and he's got some got some big opinions on on change. And he's yeah, not. He doesn't like politicians, does he? <laughs> no, he doesn't <laughs> at all. I, I mean, I came into the motor industry around three years ago, and I've got to say, one of the nicest things about it is that feeling of it, with its history and the passion that people have around it. That's very tangible. It's very real. You get it from a lot of people in the sector. And I, I think that's one of the best things about the, the motor industry. It's, it's actually really, it's, it's a great feeling. Do you think it leads to success? Well, yeah, I think the passion leads to success because in the end people, they want to see it succeed. So there won't be driven, you know, setbacks. They'll, they'll keep going. I think it's also important to have fresh ideas in the industry. And I think that's happening a lot at the moment uh, with all the changes that we've got. But I do think that passion around cars is incredibly important yeah it is it, it's uh it's amazing Tavares Tavares whatever you call him he he um he's got it in spades mm. but he do you remember one of us I think you did you somebody asked him whether he you know if he cared so much about politicians and what they do perhaps he'd like to be one and he said <laughs> he reckoned it was too hard yeah yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. He was in the UK um, a few months ago, looking around the the Vauxhall Luton factory, and he's he's fantastic to interview because he he turns up to all his outposts around the world and um, suggests some improvements they can make, and then uh, turns up a few months later and notes they've always been always been done. I think he he's an example, and um, Tom, you say you come into the industry a few years ago. What I always find about the industry is. Just how big, how vast it is. You know, you, you've got you're dealing with hardware, software, safety legislation, politicians as well. What what kind of leader does it take to be able to bring bring everything like that together? Yeah, well, I think that complexity. You're exactly right. It, it's it's very noticeable. Like the it's regulated. It's in every. I mean, we can just physically walk into any street and there they are, cars everywhere. Right? They're, we're surrounded by them in every society. So. Um, I also think this is a period of change. That, you know, obviously they periodically come, but at the moment we've got a lot going on with the EVs, mobility, changes in ownership models, all kinds of things happening at once. I think it does take a remarkable leader to navigate that complexity, but the industry does attract some remarkable people into these leadership roles. And in the end, I think there is a societal desire to see this succeed. You know, we need to get to net zero. We need mobility to to continue to be a thing. It's got to be affordable. All of these drivers, I think, are very profound. So, I mean, the industry is doing something very important. Yeah. I love the way these blokes can see the shape of things. You know, Demio sat down for a while and with with chosen advisors and just saw what the shape of the Renault Group should be. And I think Tavera is the same. They just, they can just work out what it will be like after they've finished. 
Right. And I can never see that in the tough. Really tough to do. It's impressive when they do it. Yeah. Which makes you wonder, how is it harder to be a politician than a car company boss? I do, I do think. We're offering comment on the uh, state of politics globally, but it's uh, it's remarkable that that someone like Tavares can see can see a more difficult job than than leading a international car company. In but he's got more direct um, uh, authority, I suppose. You know, if he if he says we're going to paint all the dealerships blue, then that's what happens. Whereas <laughs> politicians have to get into a debate with uh, untold hordes, you know, to make it happen. A very different type of leader uh, also features on list. Um, Adrian Mardell, the, the JLR CEO. It's been a, a big year for, for JLR, um, renamed from, from Jaguar Land Rover. Um, creating the house of brands, moving to the agency model, um, but then also you know through the change of leadership uh, itself. Now, Steve, uh, you and I both interviewed his his predecessor uh, Thierry Bolloré, and it's fair to say, Mardell, a bit of a a bit of a surprise name um, at, at the helm of of JLR. Yes, I mean Bolloré left uh, by surprise, didn't he? Without we still don't exactly know why, but he. Um, there doesn't seem to be any great um, scandal involved, but he but he just chose to leave and uh, was replaced by Adrian Mardell, the CFO, the chief financial officer, a man who, in all probability, didn't expect to ever have that job. And he's taken to it. I think you and I would agree, wouldn't we, Mark, that he's taken to it pretty well. And, and it's... Um, uh, he he has good grounding, good good thing to work with. The, the success of the of the Land Rover side of the business is amazing, and presumably, they must think the potential of the electrified Jaguar side of the business uh, has a has good potential. But uh, Mardell is still, nevertheless, a surprising choice. Good guy, we, we thought, didn't we? Yeah, I, I interviewed him uh, a few months ago now, and it was quite quite a long time in the making, just because he's never spoken to the the media before. I think he had quite a few rounds of of media training, thinking we were going to be ripping his head off. But uh, no, he was he was very calm, a methodical speaker, a deep thinker. But it it also gave some insight into the complexity of of a of a car company like like JLR and how. I guess the internal politics and internal functions operate. It's uh, you know he he knows everyone in the entire company. He said he had hundreds of WhatsApp messages um, from from people he'd known throughout his career at JLR when he comes in, and that that brings a, a you know a power and a responsibility in its own right. Really, just being being respected and knowing how a company works. Um, Tom, you know, we've we've talked about Demare and Tavares, really big names, you know, big big powerful people having dinners with politicians. But but someone like Mardell shows that leaders can come come from anywhere. Yeah, I think that's right. There's more than one way to get good results, and uh, obviously someone like Mardell has got the 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 connections in the company, and I think that reflects trust. Uh, people talk about authentic leadership, be yourself. But I think in the end, if you're trusted by the people that are working for you, they will respond well to that. I mean, there are examples from other companies like Steve Herrett, um, Sage, where he was the CFO, took the CEO role on. I think it's been a great success in that role. I think in the end, that, that piece of it, which is about authenticity, trust, people believing that you are the person that's putting the company first, taking it forward, that, that's clearly what's going on here. The thing that also seems to uh, one thread that seems to have come with Mardell is the fact that the, we, we, JLR was was 
it's no secret, was losing quite a lot of money or spending quite a lot of money on warranty claims. The cars are beautiful cars. We always review them well, but they're not always perfect in, in owner's experience. And that, particularly in Land Rover's case, became expensive. And I think Mardell's ability with fin finance and to understand what the implications are of having huge warranty or large warranty claims are uh, um, has caused uh, attention to be paid to that kind of thing. Tom, you have um, you have connections with the dealers, don't you? We do. What, what, what do you what do you make of the their dealer structure? Is it is it um, is it changing, improving? Yeah, we've gone through a lot of change. I mean, several times. Um, so I think you know that the, they have changed direction, and we've had feedback from retailers about that. It's not necessarily always been easy for the retailers to handle, but I think now they know where they're going. They've set, set out a clear strategy. The house of brand strategy is now clear, and that's come with Mardell. Yes, indeed, right. And so I mean, so I think people are pleased that that's at the retailer level. I think they're pleased that that's now clear. Um, I think if you wound back over the last three or four years, they'd say there, there was some tacking left and right, which we did get some feedback about. And Tom, staying with you, Mardell, you know, a CFO and your example um, from Sage there, it just shows that you know sometimes being an accountant can really help in, in these top jobs. Yes, definitely. I think you know, and it's it's um, it's the first uh, rule, which is you've got to run the company profitably to make it sustainable, so it can innovate. So I do think it's foundationally important, uh, and obviously, you know, warranty claims or the supply chain uh, handling that well, uh, incredibly important part of the of the role. They've also you you will have seen this like me, Mark. They they've started to to um, major on stories about how they're suddenly doing well in quality surveys and so on. They've still got they've got a way to go, but they've improved a lot. A very nice segue into a name we heard earlier, Elon Musk at Tesla. We can't talk about uh, automotive industry leadership without um, talking about Elon. He does things differently, Steve, doesn't he? I think it's fair to say he does. But he, I think, he shows the extreme um, potential of of leadership. You know, he is Tesla, isn't he? And and uh, without him, it would be a it would be a, a much more anonymous business. Mm. And I think there are plenty of people who are personally impressed by Elon and the, and the, and the direction that he seems. He, he just seems to be one of these people with this most attractive quality of certainty. I, personally, I always find people with certainty attractive. You, you're, your inclination is to follow them, and he has got certainty. Mm. I, you and I both interviewed him. I interviewed him in quite a, a big, long way, and he, during which time he was so, so completely convinced that the way that they're going is right. He was the bloke that that said hydrogen is the fuel of the future and always will be. <laughs> and I think it's not quite like that, but but uh, but that was his point of view, and he, he's just what somebody that states things and sticks by them, and I love that. Mm. Before you join the industry, Tom, how, how many? How many car company CEOs could you name? Would you say? It's yeah, prob <laughs> probably Elon is the one everyone's everyone knows. In the, you know, absolutely. And you're right; he's a visionary. I mean, there's no question that he is pursuing a vision, and and that has been very impressive to see. Hmm. I, I tend to think that, that on the hydrogen thing, he might be wrong, but uh, <laughs> I guess we'll find out in the next decade. Amazing, uh, amazing growth in the company, though, isn't yeah. it? You know, when would we? It seems like 
just a few years ago when we were wondering whether Tesla would amount to anything in volume terms. And now, of course, it's, you know, Europe's biggest selling car, etc. It's extraordinary. It happened, didn't it? Almost overnight with the launch of that car, Tesla was just loss making quarter after quarter, year after year for a, a good decade or more. And then the, the boats arrived with the Model 3 and then the Model Y and... Um, yeah, it's sort of never looked back. And those two enormous things that, of course, he did, one was integrate the supply chain and make sure that it is integrated, which is very impressive with Tesla. And then the other, you know, the other one is owning more of the relationship with the customer. So I think those those two big things that he has got done at Tesla, I think a lot of other players in the industry are looking at that and saying, we'd like to do more of that ourselves. So, so why, just staying with you, Tom, why, why are they important then? You know, managing, taking control of the supply chain, it's... Yeah, Tesla did well for the last few years, while others, frankly, did did, did terribly when it saw it relationships with suppliers. So it was, what are the benefits of, of that? Well, I think that primarily cost and the ability to continue to deliver when uh, supply is, is disrupted, as we've seen in the last couple of years. So I think that uh, having a more integrated supply chain is great for profitability. It's great for certainty to be able to deliver. I think with the customer relationship, more and more, everybody is going to be concerned about loyalty. How do we bring customers back to buy again from whether it's Tesla or a retailer or an online retailer? Everybody's going to be thinking about how do I keep my customers loyal? And I think that's going to be a theme for years. Has the industry been quite quite slow on that front, would you say? It just everything, you know, I remember writing stories, some of the first stories I wrote, wrote Autocar were the, these electric cars that are coming out in a year or two and by 2020 it'd be... 20, 30% of the market, but we're kind of only really just there at ma- mass adoption. And But we're supposed to have hydrogen by now, as we've said about whether or not that, that does happen. But you know, the speed of change within the industry, Tesla seems a bit of an outlier, doesn't it, in, in driving that? Yes, but it is such an enormous industry. I think it will continue to change. And the predictions on how fast quite hard to make. But I think those themes are definitely coming. So I think a lot of the new entrant OEMs, that's going to change the market a great deal. And people are looking for affordability. Um, and obviously, we've got to make the journey to net zero. I think So I, I think the industry is responding, uh, but it's also an enormous industry, so it can't respond overnight. Musk is, fair to say, not everyone's cup of tea, Steve. Um, no. Is it... Is it possible to decouple Musk from Tesla? Could, could, can you see Tesla as a as a, a sort of car company we're talking about in 20, 30, 40, 50 years' time? I, I would think you could decouple him now. I think it would, it would still be strange because people would follow Elon, the life and times of Elon. But the, Tesla has done enough. I was just thinking, as Tom was speaking, the, the, the th- I still look at the Tesla Model 3, which is quite an old car now, 2018. It's um, one of the few cars which was designed from the from the ground up at the time to be an EV. As a result, it's still 400 or so kilograms lighter than the BMW equivalent, which is based on a petrol car. And I think that that um, courage and leadership is it's all they also use you know front end um, sorry front rank uh, battery technology don't they 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 always seem to lead technically and that is something that i i imagine if you know if the next guy to take over tesla next person to take over tesla would want to continue with that preeminence mm. 
and that would that would be a, a seller, I would think. They've often seen one step ahead, haven't they, with, with charging network as well. You know, it's, they're almost alone in having their own proprietary. Yeah. It's such a conclusive network. advantage, isn't it? It's it's the reason many people. Elon's a reason. The the supercharger network's another reason, and the cars look pretty good too. But though, you know, Elon and the superchargers, boy, they're such a driver to sales, aren't they? Yeah, and then the over-the-air updates. The fact that the car's prepping itself for the charges, you approach them. There's a lot of technical uh, technology advantages in those vehicles, which I think are real for owners. Mm. Mm. I just wish you didn't have to open the glove box with a button on the screen. <laughs> He's. Um, it's, it's fair to say, you know, Elon and Tesla do their own thing. The price drops was uh, quite the remarkable one. So I wonder if you've got, got a bit of insight uh, into that, the sort of impact on that. Was it a good thing? Bad thing, keep you busy? Well, certainly for retailers, of course, holding stock, um, it undoubtedly had a a very significant impact on the spot. So it's a painful adjustment. Those price drops were a painful adjustment for retailers. I think long term, however, the affordability, closing the affordability gap on EVs is a big deal. And so I I completely understand why they're making those moves. And it seems like the right thing to be doing overall. But it um, it did have quite an impact on people holding a lot of Tesla vehicles. It doesn't. Tesla just seems almost untouchable in a way, doesn't it? No matter what it does, how much unpredictable it is, and 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 the stuff it does, that's almost unheard of for, for prices to be dropped that heavily. But then other car makers reacted, and, and and did likewise. It's just it's just remarkable, and, it, and Tesla is just constantly held up as as this sort of benchmark, um, and quite rightly so in, in many ways. And But 10, 15 years ago, we'd, we'd, we'd never heard of it. It didn't exist. It's well, Henry Ford d- dropped the price of, of, of his cars by a, a huge amount in the in the 20s. And, uh, you know, just because he did, he, his method of manufacture had become so efficient and his supply chains had been so become so streamlined that he could afford to do it. And his idea was to was just to put cars... Um, the cars that he thought people should have at the disposal of more a wider uh, part of society, and I think you could draw a parallel. You know, Elon is uh, is one of the things that I took out of my interviews with him was that he's absolutely dedicated to the to the the thought that everybody needs to be driving a, a pure EV, and that this is this is a way of doing it. And if there's a bit of pain along the way, well, that's that's how it, because what what he has done, of course, is to help bring the price of the rivals down. So he's done the consumer a favour, really. What's he like then in person, Steve? What's his... I found him a very um, lucid and and sort of serious man. He's not a... You know, he's sometimes portrayed as, as, as a bit wild. But I didn't find him wild at all. I thought he was extremely logical. And he... he Listen. He he takes you very seriously when he's talking to you. He doesn't just parrot the usual old stuff that he's spoken to the previous person about. It it was it was the the ideal interview, and he he was he's a great explainer. So I um I got religion to be honest. Hmm. It was interesting seeing him talking to Rishi Sunak last week, um, because the caricature of what he's like, I've not met him myself. Uh, you know, he's very thoughtful, very softly spoken, as you say, a great explainer. Yeah. I mean, so the caricature of, of him and the reality seems to be something pretty different. Yeah, I think personally he's got a few bumps and ups and downs. And, of course, he's he's so busy doing so many things that people mm. think he can't possibly have 
be a be a thoughtful person, but he but he is most definitely a you know a a, a person that takes time. Mm. Yeah, I, I only interviewed him once and it wasn't a very a long one, but you could you could generally see the noughts and ones you know operating in his brain. Yeah, he, he just he, he does. Yeah, he I wouldn't say he looked. He looks sort of past you in a way, and not not in a disrespectful way at all. But you know, he's always you can tell he's looking at the horizon and uh, just just thinking differently. And yeah. I think with, unprompted, within two minutes, he was talking about colonizing Mars, and you kind of you'd go with it, and it because he's he's so engaging and so clever. You just sort yeah. of um, you stick with him. When I met him, he was once was in a formal interview, but the other time was at Westfield where they opened a, a shop. And he was firmly of the opinion that people who went to a shopping centre, even if they weren't about, to, they didn't arrive buying, wanting to buy a car, they were in the mood. So if, even if they'd come out to buy a pair of socks, they were better prepared to, to 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 consider buying a car from his shop next to the sock shop than uh, than they would be in other circumstances. It's really interesting. Really interesting. I have got a friend who bought a Model Three, having seen it at Heathrow. He was sitting at Heathrow, and there it was. And he said, I think I'm going to buy one. And I think they had a two weeks to change your mind if you do. And he, I think he bought it then and there. Wow. <laughs> Is that something retail could do a bit more of, Tom, would you say, that, yeah. those sort of approaches and those sort of different thinkers? I think so. I do think people need to think about this because, of course, 25 years ago, the idea that you could get a mortgage sitting at your computer after dinner with a glass of wine in 30 minutes would have seemed absurd. And now we all take that as completely normal. I do think we need to think about when are people wanting to buy? When do they want to interact? Those, those things are definitely changing. And obviously, it's a physical product is different. But that question of where are people interested in interacting with automotive retail? I think that's that's changing a lot. Mm. And a lot of potential, isn't there? Yeah, a lot of potential. I think that's right. And a lot of potential to make it more convenient for people, more on their terms. I think when people are at home and they're thinking about buying something, they have a different reaction to the moment when they're sitting across from someone who's saying, hey, how about this? Yeah. How about this? I mean, I think we all behave differently in those settings. And the question is, how can you let people do it as they want to do it? Mm. Perhaps most remarkable of all at Musk, in, in our in our power list, there's, there's other names. Um, you know, you, you might want to have a similar impact, but there's never been another one, has there? There's no one has broken through to the level that, that he has. No, well, uh, only Henry Ford, really. Well, well I suppose you could say uh, um, Henry Ford and the blokes from Alfred Sloan, the GM guy that followed him, but but not 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 in such a sort of global impact way. I don't think. No. Mm. Um, Ford headed these days by Jim Farley. Yeah, someone you also know well, Steve. How's he? Any of the Henry in him? I think there is. He he had a career in other companies. I think he started off in Toyota, and he is a absolutely died in the world car enthusiast. He you know he still races his own GT40 and comes to Le Mans Classic and all the rest of it. But he loves the industrial process, and and uh, he's a very I think he's a very sort of egalitarian bloke. So he likes to to think of Fords as being attainable cars, and you know. Um, um, cars that everyone can understand and, and, and enjoy, and I like him for that. He came to our office one time um, a few years ago now before he got the big job, but he when he, he was the boss in Europe, and instead of being a bloke in an ivory tower, he came and visited the likes of us and sat down. We had lunch, and it was a 
it was an amazing event because he because he just he just wanted to spread the word what a good bloke mm. how hard is it um would you say tom for to try and change a company like ford you know a, a name as as big as ford preparing it for the for the modern world uh, enormously difficult what, what a complicated job but i do think there's a lot of goodwill behind that brand I and mean, i personally grew up with fords we had fords year after year after year and that point about the fact that they're a car for everyone um and i you know as you said farley's got that idea for also now for evs but i think that's a it's a complicated business no question about it so he's got he's got a lot of work on his hands now talk about elon musk maybe in the context of of Henry Ford, that Steve, you've spoken to a few other other legends um, in the past, Enzo Ferrari, even yeah, lots of what an amazing thing to do. It, it, it you would think it was um, it was uh, like dying and going to heaven, but actually it was, and it was um, overwhelming in that you know the the officers, you know the the grand office that you only see photographs of, and a bit very dark and old man at the end of the room and all that. But he was very disappointing interview because. People, he doesn't speak English. There's a he is in my time. His um, minder was a bloke called Franco Gozzi, who only really allowed him to answer one question, to which there was only one answer. And everybody wanted to to know, Mister Ferrari, what is your what is your the, the greatest Ferrari you ever built? And his answer was the next one. <laughs> and this was this was coached into him by Franco Gozzi, who wouldn't really allow any other conversation. And the same answer applied, incidentally, to the greatest motor race. So he was a wonderful man, and he did amazing things. But uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't list him in your in your um, list of greatest interviews. So, Tom, some, some huge names there, some like Ferrari lending his name to the company. Above all else, how important are big leaders, big personalities to, to, to the running of the automotive industry and the success of it? Well, I think it is an industry that attracts big personalities and they, they, they've left their mark on history and it's wonderful to hear that story about Enzo Ferrari. Um, I think also people running companies like that know that they are the stewards of a lot of history. And so the question is, how do you take that forward successfully? So it is the next model and the next race without losing the history. So we've got to be respectful of the history, but we've also got to be prepared to drive ahead. So look, I mean, I think the, the industry will continue to attract those sorts of people. Thank you very much, Tom, uh, CEO of Keyleap, and thank you, Steve, as well. That's about it for today on this episode, but plenty more episodes to come. Thank you very much to our sponsors, Keyleap, and for more on the Powerlist 100, head to autocar.co.uk slash business.